I'm Josh Porter, and this is the Van City Church Podcast. The following teaching is part one in the series, Practicing the Way, Sabbath. To be human is to live in restless want. We are being bombarded on all sides by a message of desire, achievement, and consumption. Ever dissatisfied yet perpetually busy, we have largely forgotten that Jesus promised for his disciples, rest for your soul. Unrest drains, depletes, distorts, and destroys us. It empties our capacity to love and therefore empties our capacity to follow Jesus well. But this is not the way it has to be. All right, it often seems as though uh, the modern world has largely turned its back on faith and spirituality, but that's really not true. If you want to get technical about it, according to the worldview of the scriptures, this library of writings that we call the Bible, that just isn't true. Everyone is religious. Everyone serves and follows a master or a set of masters. The question is, what? Everyone directs the vacuum of human desire at something, and that something is, for them, God. It could be a career or money in general. It could be a marriage or a family or their image or approval. It could be sex or shopping or food or travel or accomplishment. It could just be fun in general or work. It could just be stuff. And so what you get are a collection of suggestions for dealing with this from a plethora of religions and spiritual philosophies and wisdom traditions down throughout history. Buddhism, for example, teaches one to detach from their desire. Modern uh, millennial Instagram culture teaches one to satisfy any and every desire, as long as you take a picture while doing it. Otherwise, what's the point? But Jesus teaches not to detach from desire and not to chase after desire, but to put it in its proper place below God. Dallas Willard wrote this, desire is infinite, partly because we were made by God, made for God, made to need God, and made to run on God. We can be satisfied only by the one who is infinite, eternal, and able to supply all our needs. We are only at home in God. When we fall away from God, the desire for the infinite remains, but it is displaced upon things that will certainly lead to destruction. Or as the African bishop, uh, St. Augustine, or Augustine, however you want to say it, if you're in Florida, it's Augustine. If you're you know, trying to be theological, it's Augustine. He famously wrote this, You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it finds rest in you. Turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 11. By the way, I'm Josh. If we haven't met, I don't think I said that from the outset. I was too busy with Katie's birthday. So selfless am I that I forgot to mention my own name. Um, tonight, we're actually beginning a series and a set of practice around the subversive idea of rest. Or, put another biblical way, Sabbath. More on that word in just a bit. And I use that word subversive to describe a word as common and simple as rest because we are all being taught almost constantly to accumulate and to accomplish. And what... uh, 
And what, what an amazing time to be alive. The world of advertising got in bed with the world of social media and together birthed an entirely new abomination, more heinous than other, any of them independently on their own. Social media, the arena in which one curates the best thoughts, best images, best moments of their lives, became the perfect outlet to peddle products and travel destinations and fashion and designer baby bottles and whatever it could possibly be. In an article published in The Atlantic last summer, uh, the marketing and communications manager of a luxury hotel noted this, and I quote, everyone with a Facebook or Instagram these days is an influencer. It's possible that people with 600 Facebook friends will write us on it every single day and say, hi, I'm an influencer. I want to stay in your hotel for free, end quote. Another hotel representative in the same article lamented the 20 plus messages per day they were receiving at the time from Instagram self-described influencer influencers. The feeds relentlessly spawning in the darkness of your smartphone bombard you with reminders of what you could and should have, what you could and should be doing, where you could and should be going. Uh, nearly every time that my wife publishes a photo of like one of our children on the internet, then this is not hyperbole, I don't think. There will appear almost instantaneously a string of comments beneath it saying, asking, where did you buy that jacket? Where did those shoes come from? What about that lamp in the background? The carpet, where can I get it? <laughs> Even when we aren't being deliberately hosed with consumption opportunities, we create them for ourselves. Um, you have been trained over a lifetime to do this. In fact, I read this week that in a 1927 issue of the Harvard Business Review, one leading Wall Street banker, dreamed big about America and wrote this, we must shift America from a needs to a desires culture. People must be trained to desire, to want new things, even before the old had been entirely consumed. We must shape a new mentality in America. Men's desires must overshadow his needs. So today, why does Apple release a new iPhone every year? Why do they admittedly design software updates to render older models slow and faulty and obsolete? Because you will get a new one and because you want them. Why do pe people seek out and develop wardrobes with dozens or even hundreds of items, most of which are rarely, if ever, worn or enjoyed? Why do people have two or even three cars at a time when one might be sufficient, or in some cases, none might be sufficient? Why do we pay for things that we don't need to keep them and display them and flaunt them and photograph them? In summation, let's go to Jerry and George, who put it really well, I think. So that's it? Yeah. You're out. Except for one small problem. I, uh, <laughs> I left some books in her apartment. <laughs> so? Go get them. No, 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 no. I, I can't go back there. Jerry, it's so awkward. <laughs> so forget about the books. Did you read them? Well, yeah. What do you need them for? <laughs> no, they're books. What is this obsession people have with books? They put them in their houses like they're trophies. What do you need it for after you read it? They're my books. <laughs> Here, obviously, books becomes a cipher for just stuff in general. And of course, it's not just stuff, it's achievements as well. It could be education or passport stamps or position and prestige, acclaim, titles, career, and on and on the list goes. Now, before you tune out, I've reached the end of the rant, before you tune out and say, old man Josh is at it again, here's my point. To be human is to live in restless want. But 
You, said human, live in a world that stokes the fire of that want to a nearly incomprehensible degree. And here's why this is crucial for our conversation this evening. When the innate inner restlessness of humanity is set on the fires of materialism and achievement and desire, joy and satisfaction burn away. And maturity is stunted or even reversed. Mental and emotional unhealthiness reigns. The hamster who can never stop the wheel. With every rotation, he wants another doomed to pursue a destination that cannot be reached, for it does not exist. Cardiologist Meyer Friedman, who famously correlated heart disease and chronic stress for the first time, coined the term hurry sickness, which he described thusly, hurry sickness is a continuous struggle, an unremitting attempt to accomplish or achieve more and more things or participate in more and more events in less and less time. In his book, Subversive Sabbath, uh, A.J. Swoboda writes this. This is a big one, by the way. Brace yourself. You'll be fine. Our time-saving devices, technological conveniences, and cheap mobility have seemingly made life much easier and interconnected. As a result, we have more information at our fingertips than anyone in history. Yet, with all this progress, we are ominously dissatisfied. In bowing at these sacred altars of hyperactivity, progress, and technological compulsivity, our souls increasingly pant for meaning and value and truth as they wither away, exhausted, frazzled, displeased, ever on edge. The result is a hollow culture that, in Paul's words, is ever learning but never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. Next slide. Our bodies wear ragged. Our spirits thirst. We have an inability to simply sit still and be. As we drown ourselves in a 24-7 living, we seem to be able to do anything but quench our true thirst for the life of God. We have become perhaps the most emotionally exhausted, psychologically overworked, spiritually malnourished people in history. And you actually know this on a basic level. When you are unrested in the general sense, worn out, overworked, not enough sleep, are you typically at your best mentally and emotionally and relationally? No, thank you, Aaron. No, you're not. That we can comprehend. But it's interesting that we don't often consider what the absence of spiritual rest is doing to our souls in the immediate sense and in the long run over time. Jesus famously and quite clearly taught the greatest command in all the scriptures is to what? Love God and, and love your neighbor as yourself. Great job. You guys are Christians. Well done. Now, do you love your best when you are not rested? Now, is this a timid answer? Do you love your best when you are not rested? No, because unrest is draining. It depletes you. It distorts you. And ultimately, it can destroy you. I, I, I don't mean that in the hyperbolic sense. You can actually die from not getting enough rest. It empties your capacity to love and therefore empties your capacity to follow Jesus well. But this is not the way it has to be. So with all that in mind, let's read from Matthew chapter 11, beginning in verse 28. Jesus says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you what? Rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. 
for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. In the message, Eugene Peterson paraphrases thusly. I love this. He writes, are you tired, (laughs) worn out, burned out on religion? Come to me. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me, and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. This beautiful passage is about several things, obviously, but one of them is clearly rest. I believe rest is among the least uh, understood concepts in discipleship to Jesus. Many think of rest and replenishing and margins and limits and boundaries, vacation, whatever it might be. All of that stuff has kind of taken from the world of self-help books and podcasts and TED Talks. We don't think of it as essential to life with God, to apprenticeship to Jesus. And it's not just because, as we've already addressed, so much of the world grates against the idea of rest. It's that so few of us understand what the idea actually is. For some, rest is little more than like a day off from work. For others, rest is like more sleep than usual. And in an achievement-based culture, rest and hard work have been made into opponents rather than friends. And yet, None of these things actually capture the biblical motif of rest or what Jesus was getting at when he invited us into it. And this is a problem because rest, not unlike prayer or community or church, what you're doing right now, is essential in apprenticeship to Jesus. The ancient spiritual discipline of rest is a non-negotiable lifestyle rhythm for those who follow Jesus. So we need to understand it. Now, the method of rest that we will be unpacking for a bit is something called Sabbath. It's not the only means of tapping into what Jesus called rest, but it is a good one, and one of the best ways to learn how in the long run. Now, notice in your Bibles, if you're still in Matthew, the very next line in the passage we've just read as a new chapter begins is the beginning of two stories about something called the Sabbath. And remember, in the original manuscripts, the chapters and verses aren't aren't there. We've added those in after the fact, meaning Matthew is actually continuing in the same idea here about rest and Sabbath. So what is Sabbath in the Bible? In Hebrew, the word is Shabbat, and literally it simply means to stop. In context, it was an, an entire day set aside to stop, stop working, stop wanting, stop worrying, stop rushing, stop all that and rest. And the concept predates Jesus of Nazareth by thousands of years, actually. It's not about stopping only. In fact, the first line about Sabbath in the Bible, all the way back in Genesis, reads thusly, God blessed the Sabbath day and made it what? Does anyone know? Holy, right. In Hebrew, the word holy is literally more like other or different or unique. It's set apart from the rest. That day is unique from the others. It's dedicated to God. An entire day, unique, set apart, dedicated to God for rest, to stop all our clamoring and scrambling and just rest. Again, this from A.J. Swoboda. He says, Sabbath has largely been forgotten by the church, which has uncritically mimicked the rhythms of the industrial and success-obsessed West. The result? Our road-weary, exhausted churches have largely failed to integrate Sabbath into their lives as vital elements of Christian discipleship. It's not as though we do not love God. We love God deeply. We just do not know how to sit with God anymore. I think he's probably right. 
and I think we need to learn to remember. Now, next week, we'll get into a biblical theology of Sabbath. Tonight's more of an introduction, a kind of broad overview, but we will begin to see, in theory, I hope, the, this idea that Sabbath or restfulness is about so much more than like a day with specific rules on how you have to chill or something like that. It's more than a day at all, really, more than just a discipline, but it's not less than those things. When we look at the life and lifestyle of Jesus, we encounter this strange and wonderful portrait of a man who was in anything but a hurry, uh, often to the frustration of his friends and coworkers. He was completely unhurried and unanxious. And Jesus continues to teach us that true rest is about more than a day's practice. It's actually about a way of life. It is a disposition out of which one lives and operates in the world. A lifestyle of restfulness is, is about synonyms and antonyms, I think. So if you think about restfulness, you think about things like margin. But if you think about restlessness, you think about busyness, which is a word I'm sure a lot of us can identify with. Restfulness is slowness, but restlessness is hurry. Restfulness is quiet, but restlessness is noise and clamor and chaos. Restfulness is space for deep, meaningful relationships, but restlessness is isolation. You may know a million people, but you're spread a mile thin and an inch deep. Restfulness gives you space for time alone, but restlessness is nonstop crowds. Restfulness is delight, enjoyment, and clarity, but restlessness is distraction, envy and jealousy, and confusion. No focus on where you're going and what you're doing. Restfulness is about gratitude, realizing that each and everything you have is a gift from God and wanting nothing more or less. And restlessness is about greed, always what more can I get, where can I go, what can I do? Restfulness is contentment, but restlessness is constant discontentment and dissatisfaction. Restfulness is about trust and working from a natural disposition of love, but restlessness is about anxiety, fretting about every new day, constantly woking up, shaking, clamoring for that next big thing or whatever's coming down the pipeline that's always terrifying, and working for love as a result rather than from it. And finally, restfulness is working as a contribution to God's creation and culture and the way things should be. But restlessness is about working to get more stuff, more money, more space to play, accomplishment, status, prestige, all that. Now look at this, and, and please believe me when I say this is not at all intended as a guilt trip, but in which column do you find more of yourself than the other? I know for me, I see so much of myself on the right-hand side, it's a very safe bet that the vast majority of us feel more solidarity with column B than column A. Look at the way Rollheiser describes this predicament that we're in. He says this, We are a restless people. Restlessness is the opposite of being restful. Restfulness is one of the most primal cravings humans have. We crave rest to the point where we identify it with heaven. Grant us eternal rest. Today, as our lives grow more pressured, as we grow more tired, as we begin to feel burned out, we fantasize more about restfulness. We imagine a peaceful, quiet place. We see ourselves walking by a lake, watching a peaceful sunset, smoking a pipe in a rocker by the fireplace. I don't, but apparently he does. But even in those images, we make restfulness yet another activity, something we do, then we return to normal life. True restfulness, though, is a form of awareness a way of being in life. 
It is living ordinary life with a sense of ease, gratitude, appreciation, peace, and prayer. We are restful when ordinary life is enough. Isn't it ironic uh, that one of the most popular problems preventing disciples of Jesus from true rest or taking a Sabbath time is actually laziness? (laughs) Because it takes effort to do this. It requires a sense of preparation and thinking through stuff. It requires dedication, certainly, and then abstinence to say no to stuff that speeds you up and yes to stuff that slows you down. It takes discipline. It takes thoughtfulness. That's why this practice can be, I think, instrumental in honing a restful way of life. The idea is not to get all your rest from a day of the week, but to use a day of the week to nurture a lifestyle of restfulness. So think of it like a day for training, a day for focusing in hardcore on a way you want to be all the time. It's a bit like our idea of therapy and counseling here at Van City. Um, we have a very high view of both. I've been seeing a therapist regularly for four years now, a PhD who's been practicing psychology for decades. He's also a disciple of Jesus. Um, Abby and I have done marriage counseling. We at Van City regularly offer a list of recommended therapists and counselors. We use it all the time. We defer all the time. But sometimes people are unsatisfied and they say things like, man, I or my loved one, whoever it is, We've been seeing a counselor for a month now. We don't feel any better, to which we often say, well, therapy is only one piece of emotional health. And even with a great therapist, the breakthrough ultimately depends on you, what you do and don't say, what you are and aren't prepared to own and confront and address, where and where you aren't willing to go in those conversations and in that space. And then I learned today that psychologist Barry Duncan estimates that 30% of change from therapy comes from supportive relationships, or what we call community. And even then, there's more to do on the journey of being an integrated, emotionally healthy, mature disciple of Jesus. So in a similar sense, keeping a Sabbath day is great. We recommend it. We practice it. We're going to learn about it together. But it's part of the journey to becoming a people who live in the rest of God. Walter Brueggemann, who has what is easily the best titled book on the subject, it's called Sabbath as Resistance, said this, People who keep Sabbath live all seven days differently. So with that, let's practice together. The practice is already up at practicingtheway.org slash Sabbath. If your community is way behind with the previous practice because of the holidays and all that, don't worry. You're not alone. Ours is. Um, There's no rush. Have a conversation when you get together this week about how to get on track and then work at your own pace. Remember, the invitation, as always is to maintain faithfulness and simply give it a shot. Now, disclaimer here, I want to stress something about this idea of Sabbath that I've already broached but want to reinforce as we proceed. I believe this practice and its implications are very important, but unlike many of the prior practices, there is a lot here that will vary from person to person. So hopefully, you'll generate conversation in your community about how you want to rest, how you want to stop, so to speak, and then you'll give it a shot. Hold one another accountable. Have conversations as you go. 
There's no black and white rule book. There's no mandatory, you have to do these things. And what is a necessary stop for one person may not be something shared by their spouse or by other people in their community. So the idea is that you encourage one another to make a plan and then try it, even if it doesn't look the same for every person. Traditionally, a Sabbath runs from Friday at sundown to Saturday night, but that's not the rule. You can do it any day of the week. Sunday, I imagine, works for a lot of you. Many people Sabbath on Sunday. Um, some do it in the middle of the week based on their season of life, work schedule. All are viable options depending on where you're at. When you have the day in mind, when you've set it aside and you're like, that's okay, here's what I'm going to go for it. I'm going to have a day of rest. What do you do? <laughs> Some of the writers and thinkers who have worked at length with this idea of Sabbath tend to suggest uh, the same kind of batch of basics. There's prayer. That's an easy one, especially a prayer, prayers of blessing and gratitude. Um, some people like to light candles to commemorate the beginning of the celebration, blow them out at the end of it, find special ways to like actually commemorate the fact that it's beginning and that it's coming to an end. Kids love that as well. Um, big meals is a huge one. Uh, feasting, celebration, the scriptures, extra time, um, studying or reading, reading in general, really. Uh, worship, and I don't just mean singing, but that's great if you like to do that, but spending time in um, thoughtful admiration and intimacy with God. Um, there's other stuff you can go do. In fact, I read this week that in the Talmud, there's actually a command for married couples to make love every single Sabbath night. So there's a suggestion for you married, just for you married folks. Um, you could go on long walks, you could take nap, you could spend relaxed time with friends and family, you could take time alone in the quiet. Um, both of those, uh, shared space with friends and family and time alone in the quiet, um, apply to those of you who claim to be introverted and those who claim to be extroverted, by the way. I get so frustrated sometimes with what seems like a mass misunderstanding of both of those terms. In fact, <laughs> a few months ago, my therapist told me that I was an introvert in passing. He's like, well, you know, since you're introverted, and I was offended. I said, hey, hold the phone, buddy. I said, I don't think I can possibly be because I love time with my friends. I love social things. I love being with people. I'm extremely relational. And he was like, yeah, so? He was like, yes, you are. To all those things, yes. Being introverted does not mean that you hate parties or that you're awkward or that you're detached and lonesome. It just means that time to yourself is replenishing and energizing. And adversely, uh, being extroverted doesn't mean that you hate alone time and you can't stand it. It just means that people and togetherness is the thing that energizes you. So the, just by the way, the results of a personality test are not permission to be a butthead. Everyone take that <laughs> to heart, please. So both parties, whether you're introverted or extroverted, need to balance a, both things, togetherness and alone time, to um, garner a lifestyle of restfulness. And again, it will look different from person to person. We actually, uh, behind the scenes talk for a moment, we craft the practices as a team with our friends at Bridgetown Church in Portland, and then individuals on that team write out the practices, we're kind of assigned them. So my friend John Mark at Bridgetown, who is a huge Sabbath enthusiast, and he has been for years, wrote this week's practice. And when you read it, you will inevitably see his personality come through in the things he suggests to do or not to do. So the idea is if they're helpful, then absolutely adapt them or adopt them straight off the page. Um, if they're not, then translate them a bit for your purposes. Some people find things like a run restful. That's great. I don't. Uh, for some, like a hike would be a restful replenishing of the soul. I honestly think I'd rather stand in line at the DMV or something like that. Um, 
for you or for me, it might be something more like just reading for hours or sitting around a table with friends with nothing to do but talk and eat or art and film or sitting by the window on a rainy afternoon with an afternoon cup. You guys know about the afternoon cup? You know about the afternoon cup? It's, <laughs> it's, it's exactly what it sounds like. We're big believers in the afternoon cup in our community to the degree that a text starts to go out in the middle of the day being like, is it time for afternoon cup? And then someone will send a picture of a coffee mug and be like, oh, I'm already there. And you're like, all right, all right, I'm making mine. And then the other day, Patrick sent one out that was like, afternoon cup, check. Like it was a rule. And people immediately started sending pictures of their coffee mug. It's a beautiful thing. Try it out. <laughs> Um, but of course, you know, the Sabbath is as much about what you do not do as it is about what you do. Um, so don't think of it as little more than a day off. Sabbath is different than a day off. Don't think of it as time to, you know, like run errands and catch up on chores or zone out on your phone. In fact, I personally suggest turning the phone off and putting it away. But the point is to take a day and rest, delight in God and delight in the fact that he delights in you. To end tonight, I just want to point out that in the few years that I've been talking about and discussing and practicing and experimenting with Sabbath, it's almost always met with some amount of opposition, which is strange because it sounds pleasant enough. I've talked to people who honestly are outright hostile to this practice. Um, some, maybe if you've grown up in a certain tradition or Seventh-day Adventist or whatever it might be, you have a lot of baggage with that term, or maybe you come from like a fundamentalist culture where it's weird. Um, if that's the case, then just call it something else, rest day or <laughs> chill day, whatever, you know, start with a clean slate. Uh, maybe some of you, for other reasons, I don't know, are already drafting in your mind a list of opposition right now, like here's why I don't need to do this. And while you certainly don't have to do it, I do think it is worth asking yourself the question. Do you feel rested in God? Do you feel like you operate from a well of deep happiness and contentment? Do you feel satisfied and unhurried, unstressed, unanxious? Do you feel present to God and to the people in your life? Do you have room in your life, margin? Would you be happy to go on living the way you are now for another few decades? And if the answer to any of those questions is no, then really, why not give this a shot? Worst case scenario, you relax. Bummer. Um, best case scenario, you tap into something over time that God has actually woven into the fabric of humanity from the very beginning. And in doing so, find what Jesus called rest for your soul. That seems worth a shot to me. If you are in, prepared to take a step to try. But remember this, again, these are not rules to obey. They are helpful practices. If you're like my wife, Abby, then you love rules. You know, you love checklists and methods. In fact, Abby often quotes Monica Geller, who famous said, rules help control the fun. You know, um, me, I would like to burn rules to the ground. Hate them. Um, in fact, uh, I was thinking through, I was writing this, I was like, man, Abby's such a huge fan of games. For years, I couldn't figure out why she was always trying to impose a board game on like a get-together where people are hanging out and having fun, friends. And then I was like, wait a minute, a controlled, rule-based way to spend time together. That's what this has been about the whole time. Um, anyway, that was the side story. But this is, this is a metaphor for working out Sabbath and finding out what different things work for different people. But listen to me on this. Just because you don't want to abstain from something on the Sabbath doesn't mean you shouldn't. 
there's such a thin, blurry line between rest preference and an unwillingness to stop. Meaning, as soon as the conversation around rest preferences begins to blossom, what people do and don't find restful, you start to hear things like, eventually, well, Instagram is restful for me, and catching up on work is restful for me. Um, But really, this should be kind of challenging. This is, after all, a spiritual discipline. It will likely be hard not to look at your phone or not to run errands if it seems like that's a good thing to do that day, or not to catch up on extra work if that feels particularly pressing for some of you. But saying no to these things affords you an opportunity to say yes to resting in Jesus in a focused, prolonged way. And it trains you to learn to do it again and again and again, not just on a special day of the week, but in the rhythms of your life. And then finally, whatever it looks like for you, it'll likely take some trial and error, which is totally fine. Remember, this isn't a a command. This is an invitation. If it's clunky at first or the first day, it feels like, I don't know what the heck we were doing. I forgot halfway through. Don't be discouraged. It was like that for us. If you miss a day or you forget your rhythm or you realize you've slipped from it and need to go back, don't be surprised. That's to be expected. Basically, commit to stop from certain things and then fill that space with slowness and restfulness, and an awareness of God. Friday morning, you know, I, uh, just this last week, I put my phone in a closet in the morning. We didn't have a plan or an agenda, and I just kind of lazily wandered around the house, playing with my kids, talking to Abby, sipping coffee on the couch for the morning, mid-morning, afternoon, and then evening cup, you know? Uh, yeah, yeah. So you're like, yeah. Damn. Um, and then when I would feel like an urge, as we, I think most of us do, if not all of us, I would feel an urge like, oh, you know, I haven't checked to see if anyone messaged me, or, you know, it'd be fun, I have an idea, I'd like to tinker with a project, or I'm like, oh, you know what, let's make a plan for tomorrow, get out the calendar. I would use that itch to kind of direct myself, just like hunger pangs and fasting, to recenter on God and realize, actually, God's enough, I can slow down, there's no need to check anything, no one dies, and I get to rest in His presence. So, give it time. The idea is not to ask yourself at the end of this practice, am I becoming someone who practices Sabbath uh, once a week? That's great if you do, but rather, am I becoming someone more restful and rested, more at ease, more aware of God and His goodness, even in the chaos of life? As we were ending our last practice, fighting the world, the flesh, and the devil, we started to wonder if we should include a section on Sabbath, but eventually we decided that it's something we should tether to the practice that preceded it, which is why we began right away, because Sabbath is spiritual warfare. Sabbath is rest as a weapon in your fight against the world, the flesh, and the devil. The person who is unanxious, relaxed, happy, secure, at peace, healthy, that is a person stronger against temptation. And I want us, Van City Church, to be a community of weirdos. Like a while back, I was talking to, let me explain, I was talking to someone who was frustrated that I uh, had taken a while to return a phone call or answer an email, and I told them, well, you know, like I try to restrict my phone use in the evening or on the weekend, so I don't look at email at those times to return calls at those times, those times, and this person leaned forward and said, that's crazy. And I was teaching uh, just a few days later at this, this small class early in the morning in Portland on this topic of Sabbath and rest, and a woman Uh, raised her hand and asked how to respond to that kind of pushback, the person who says, that's crazy. And she told me that her teenage kids 
complain that she's the only mom they know that restricts smartphone use and doesn't allow them to have their phones at dinner or out on vacation or bring them on vacation at all. And what, what do I say? And I said, tell them freaking A I am. That's the coolest thing I ever heard. Mom of the century. I want us to become people marked by the strange appeal of Jesus. For us to become a community in flagrant defiance of the status quo. Yeah, everyone else does it that way, but we don't have to. A family that says we are actively resisting the undertow of busyness and hurry and consumption. We power down and we stop and we slow and we rest. We take extended periods of time for those things to delight in God and in His goodness to pamper and replenish the soul. We feel less drained by advertisements and consumer culture. We find ourselves resisting the urge for, to reach for our phone every spare second. We often forget it altogether and turn it off and life goes on. To be like Jesus, an unhurried people who are finding in Him rest for their very souls. That, to me, sounds pretty dang good. Thanks for listening to Van City Church. You can connect with us as well as find more teachings and resources at vancity.church. You can support Van City financially at vancity.church/give.